This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Grab its new game, Time Watch, or any of its supplements at a 10% discount. For a limited time, use the voucher code TIMEHUT at the Pelgrane Web Store. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... A Scarier Cthulhu. The Chicago Film Fest. Commentary Beats. And the Foiling of Timothy Pickering. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Rolier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Rolier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Rolier at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ethan Cordray... Patreon backer asks Ken and Robin, how do we make Cthulhu actually scary? I don't mean the whole mythos. I mean the big tentacle head guy himself. Is he too overexposed to overcome mascot hood? Robin? Well, first of all, don't call him tentacle head guy. That's that's step number one. (laughs) I think you make an excellent point, Ethan, in that uh, Cthulhu is the most sort of overexposed and merchandised and uh, cutified of the major pillars of the Kululu mythos, uh, thanks to um, everybody, <coughs> John Cavallic. <coughs> but the way to make him scary, I think, is to go back to the original story, Call of Cthulhu, and look how Lovecraft makes him scary. And Lovecraft does that by doing a slow buildup in which most of it is about... Uh, hints and questions and thoughts and intimations and then you know mostly just weaves in the actions of people and the fact that this is something that's going on all along the the globe and we remember of course the big climax where he gets a boat driven into him but that is not the thing that is scary about Cthulhu because if you meet Cthulhu uh, that is actually scary uh, because you know he'll just squish you but you can't have your player's characters meeting Cthulhu all the time because that's too big a threat and they you know I guess they could run another boat into him and get away but uh, in general that creates the expectation of being squished so in a way he's sort of too big a threat to confront head-on so rather you need to find new ways to come at him sideways through his cultists and through the the strange effects that he Uh, creates in the world, wouldn't you say, Ken? Yeah, I mean, the whole point of Cthulhu is that he is indirect, right? He's not 
he hasn't emerged yet because once he emerges, the game is over as is everything. Um, so it is his effects on the world that are scary. And of course the premise that merely because something has been cutified in one thing means it can't be scary in another is demonstrably false because obviously vampires are still scary in let the right one in or near dark or any number of good vampire movies, despite having been domesticated beyond all belief by Stephanie Meyer and uh, her ilk. So, you know, the question of once something is cute, you are unable to make it scary is more of an admission of failure before the contest has happened rather than an actual move into the uh, position of, you know, attempting to create horror. If you give up the fight, you're not going to be able to win. And this sort of ironic kitsch drives out culture is self-defeating from the jump. So, and and I think, uh, I guess then the question becomes, how do we create that buildup in a scenario and a buildup that doesn't necessarily immediately foreground itself uh, as Cthulhu, right? The uh, first paragraph isn't, I discovered that this weird uh, tentacle head god existed and then I went to meet him. It's like you start to see all of the, the outward layers of um, the, the ripples into the world. And so I guess possibly a good way to explore this question further is to look at different ways into uh, Cthulhu stories that don't immediately reveal themselves as such. So I would look at something that is frightening in the mundane world and then start to bring it into Cthulhu uh, elements kind of slowly. So, for example, you know, plane crashes are scary. So, Ken, how would you, with a plane crash as point A, make Cthulhu the point uh, K or L or, or Z? Well, I mean, we've, we've just seen the degree to which uh, CNN at least unhinges itself when a plane goes missing over an ocean. Um, the most recent one went missing over the Indian Ocean, but planes can go missing over the Pacific Ocean, or you can have it go missing over the Indian Ocean and say that it's still due to Cthulhu's dream sendings or whatever other kind of influence. You're trying to track down the cause of this plane crash. You begin to figure out that, you know, uh, some of the uh, flight crew had nightmares or maybe a passenger, and uh, you begin to draw all of the various, you know, pieces of the of the black box begin to point to something having gone really horribly wrong on the flight. And that, as you're building it up, becomes evident that it is the action of Cthulhu. And it may only be evident to the players who begin to piece things together because they, unlike the characters, have read Call of Cthulhu. Or you may go into the sort of Robert Block Strange Eons method where, yes, Cthulhu exists and for some reason, he is known by everyone because Lovecraft wrote about him and he's still influencing people. And maybe you begin by saying, are these guys just these sort of bent individuals who believe that there's magic in Cthulhu and can make it happen? Or what if they were right? And what does that mean? And what does it mean now that we've got Cthulhu plushies in all kinds of kids' beds? Is that actually a bad thing? And the players can be led into reacting against the kitsch that would otherwise be preventing them or would otherwise theoretically be preventing them from taking the horror seriously as they determine that, yes, this sort of semantic damage or semiotic damage in uh, all of humanity is indeed one of the signs of Cthulhu's rise that it, the whole world knows his name before he shows up. So you can have any number of things that, that point to one or two or five or ten plane crashes, and maybe there's one that gets on CNN and there's a military plane, there's a flight out of Antarctica that everyone thought was just storms, and you begin to put those little pins on the map and draw this big outline of an area in the South Pacific where it turns out, wow, 
no airplane has flown across this in, you know, well, that, that would be a year and a half. I wonder what's going on all of a sudden. And that, you know, other airlines have just said, well, we just fly around that. It, it adds cost, uh, in gas, but it's, it's worth it not to run into those weird anomalies with the radio. What weird anomalies? Well, we figured it was a French, uh, nuclear experiment and everyone was, you know, keeping it hushed up. Who's keeping it hushed up? All these guys. What are they doing keeping this hushed up? And now you've got, are they just trying to keep a lid on global panic? Are they in league? What's going on? Because now you can tie it into the whole, um, uh, the government knows things it's not telling you fear. You can tie it into, you know, uh, obviously Cthulhu represents the apocalypse, however you want it to be. You can easily tie, uh, Cthulhu into global climate change, for example, species extinction, weird fluctuations in ocean currents, all that good stuff. That's right down. That's Cthulhu's street. Right. And, and the trick is to do it in increments. So yeah, just like Lovecraft does it in the story. Exactly. So for example, uh, your, the first plane crash that you're, uh, called to investigate is a, the crash of a small plane. And then you discover that the, uh, you know, the, the person who crashed the plane obviously deliberately drove it into the lake, starting with the lake, not the Pacific Ocean. And that uh, you then discover that they had uh, weird diary entries and they were having these strange dreams. And then uh, you investigate some of the references in the dream book. And then you're led to a, uh, a small... A rural community where there are people who uh, uh, seem to be going out in the into the swamp to do peculiar things at night, and you discover that oh, they've so they mark themselves by having themselves tattooed on the underside of their tongue. And then there's another plane crash uh, somewhere else, and it's a bigger plane, and more people are killed. And the corpses that are uh, found intact on the crashed plane, their lungs are full of water, but the plane crashed on land, and the uh, the pilot had the same tattoo under his tongue. And then you fly somewhere, you know, you're on your flight to the Antarctic and you uh, consult with your pilot in mid-flight, of course, and you happen to notice he has the tattoo under his tongue. Are all of the world's pilots being affected in this way? And then you can carry it on. Or, you know, you mentioned the, uh, you know, here's the uh, radiation anomaly that people, or magnetic anomaly. Here's the tape of the... Uh, anomaly. Do you want to listen to the tape? This is the tape that all the pilots heard. And so the uh, direct fear in all of these cases is of something that is wrong, something that is out of step. And then finally, how close do you want to get to this uh, infectious thought that seems to be jumping from people to people, right? Because that's, uh, you know, the story is about a meme. Uh, it may be the first story about a meme, and uh, do you want to get infected? You know, and that's the classic theme of, of Lovecraft in general, right? Do you want to take this knowledge into yourself, knowing that the knowledge uh, might destroy you? How do you do that? And so it's not about the fear of a, a big green guy with tentacles and bat wings. There's an intermediary fear that he is responsible for um, each step of the way. And then you can get bigger and bigger and uh, you know, the next time it's a, a passenger liner, and then finally it's a military bomber with a nuke on board, and you've got to uh, uh, stop that from, oh, look, it's headed to the South Pacific. Oh, wait, is he maybe going to drop that nuke in order to trigger the rise of Roland? Oh, well, we'd better get uh, there and stop him somehow. And so think what the smallest possible manifestation of him can be that is still scary, and work yourselves up to the bigger and bigger and bigger manifestation, but it doesn't necessarily have to take on that global scope, right? It could be just a simple matter as 
you know, you're uh, in an underwater installation and people start turning all Cthulhu on you and it's an enclosed space horror. And the fact that there's this thematic level of cosmic dread on top of it doesn't uh, obviate the fact that it's also you're afraid of being preyed upon by other people, which is essentially what all horror is or much horror is uh, just abstracted in different ways. Yeah, I think that the, you know, indirection and tying it to whatever you're actually most terrified is apocalyptic are the sort of two main elements of Cthulhu, because that's how Lovecraft did it. I mean, he tied it into a number of things that he thought were apocalyptic that we, by and large, now don't think are apocalyptic, like, you know, China. Um, but you can take whichever other thing you th- consider to be a, a, a harbinger and figure out, again, like Lovecraft did, what sort of traces is it leaving that your characters will stumble across? Thurston literally stumbles across uh, a crumpled up newspaper uh, with uh, evidence of the uh, of the shipwreck that leads into that last uh, famous confrontation at, at one remove with uh, Cthulhu. You can have the same sort of thing as your player characters begin be- investigating and discovering that they are sort of surrounded by this meme or surrounded by this symbol. And that that reproduces the sort of implacability and inescapability of Cthulhu that poor Thurston can't get away from this story no matter what he does. And even if your characters are trying to get away from it, there's a there's a phenomenon that plenty of occult researchers talk about where they begin thinking about some topic and they start seeing evidences of it everywhere. They begin pulling down books and there are references to that topic in the uh in the book colin wilson was famous for having this happen to him all the time which i think just meant colin wilson had a big library <laughs> well, well he also had young in the mind yes he did there was synchronicity going on there so the uh so the notion of synchronicity as spoor is a great other way to present cthulhu as different from you know just a sea serpent or something uh the the notion that cthulhu does literally extend into our into our culture and into our hindbrain is something that is uh, more specially uh, true and terrifying of uh, of Cthulhu. And you can also, of course, play around with the whole notion of Cthulhu. You're not uh, tied down to one specific manifestation of the entity. Uh, that's just the way that he's built in all of these sculptures. But, for example, Durlith's Cthulhu is the inhabitant of a whole other dimension that is probing at the boundaries of our dimension. Uh, Nerdless Cthulhu is actually more cosmic than Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu. And so you can present those sort of pieces of the wall coming away anywhere from, you know, uh, Sutter Kane's Maine to Peru, which is where Durleth put it, to anywhere you feel like the edges of the world are being rubbed thin. Maybe the Ural Sea, which has been poisoned by generations of communist mismanagement and biological warfare and God knows what. And so maybe the bottom of the Aral Sea is is uh, where Cthulhu is going to erupt into the world, and the South Pacific is just a head fake. Uh, yeah, t- take anywhere, any sort of haunted or cursed place that frightens you in the real world. Uh, Fukushima, which I think the the new Japanese Godzilla film does, doesn't right. it? Right. It, it, it uh, plays on Fukushima. It's not set at Fukushima, but the imagery and feel of Fukushima is very much... Uh, throughout the movie or you know uh, chernobyl uh you know what, whatever you can think of as, as something that is feels like more part of the real contemporary world just like all of the real contemporary details in call of cthulhu obviously they're not contemporary anymore because it's an older story but if you just sort of think to update that you know what if uh what if cthulhu's on the dark web right what if there's a people are 
uh, being found on their uh, computers. They found this uh, porn site that everybody, people can't normally find, but if you find it, you wish you hadn't. Uh, whatever uh, alarms you about the modern world or the primal world, right? You could uh, redo Jaws as, you know, initially it seems to be a, a great white shark that's attacking people, but uh, oh, wait a minute, how is that person killed on land? And then uh, again, it starts to turn out uh, to be uh, something uh, big and, and watery and eternal and, uh, you know, just get back to, you know, what's what's scary about the ocean? It's, 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 it's vastness, it's unplumbed depth, uh, the fact that it is an environment hostile uh, to uh, human survival. Uh, all of those things are, are things that you can take images from and then combine those primal things with uh, something new and, and modern where horror shouldn't exist because that's the secret of Lovecraft too, is that uh, whereas Dracula seems to exist in a, a gothic world, uh, the uh, horrors of the mythos exist now in our ordinary world and they're, they're uh, coming for us. Speaking of plumbing the depths, I think we plumbed the depths of that first question and can now uh, sneak away from those suspicious-looking takoyaki balls to our next segment. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. The grumbles in the lineup and the happy smiles on the faces of the helpful volunteers tell us that we've once more entered not just the Cinema Hut, but a particularly festival version of the Cinema Hut. And since this is... November and not September. This means it's Ken's Film Festival experience at Ken's Film Festival, the Chicago International Film Festival. And uh, Ken, what were your overall impressions of, uh, of this year's cinema offerings? This year, we did pretty well. It is a shame that we didn't get to see uh, Headshot, which I suspect was uh, one that we all wish that I'd seen so that we could talk about it, but I will see it Anon. But by and large, it was a good year for them, despite only having one uh, South Korean film, which I always feel is a bizarre uh, shortcoming, given that it was that festival that introduced me to South Korean film in the first place. To then hold it back from me seems unfair. So to start off, yeah. in, in a surprise uh, turn of events, your favorite film at uh, Chicago was my favorite film at Toronto. So now it's your turn to tell people about Zhang Yang's Soul on a String. Yeah, and Zhang Yang's Soul on a String. I don't know how much do we want to um, sort of 
uh, reveal stuff about the movie. Do you think that uh, spoilers matter when you're talking about a, a timeless masterpiece, or is the fun of the dislocation that happens about a third of the way into the movie worth preserving for folks? I was vague about it, so I, I, yeah. I it's a it's such a great surprise. It's not a plot turn, yeah, but I, but it's I an think element. We, it's an of. element. So uh, I, I walked around it in my description. Let's walk around it again. Anyway, very Leone-ish. There are direct steals from Good, the Bad, the Ugly in the movie. Um, it is basically... Oh, we, we, should, we should give people a quick recap of the film. All right, a quick recap of the film. Uh, there is a ne'er-do-well of, of, of Owl Hoot named uh, Tabe, who dies... In Tibet. In, in Tibet, yes. Uh, ta- uh, the actor is Mongol, but the action takes place in northern Tibet. Um, he is brought back from uh, death. He has been murdered by a guy who is wandering around killing people named Tabe. He is brought back to life by a monk. He is taken out of the bardo, and a, a Buddhist monk brings him back to life because he has previously found the Z stone, a sacred stone. And uh, when he found it, he gets hit by lightning. So you know it's a special stone. Many people <laughs> would have put that stone, stone away. I find, but there no, you go. But that's. That's how it works. But then I've been kill- running around killing people, so I don't need to be lightning by Buddha. No, you are you're 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 already further along the wheel than good old Tabe. But Tabe is the the vessel through which Buddha wishes to act, and uh, Tabe is sent by the monks to return the Z Stone to the Palm Print Land, which is sort of a sacred magical uh, place somewhere in the mountains of Tibet. And uh, as Tabe sets off. Sure enough, there are companions, there are obstacles, there are hunters, including the guy who killed him at the beginning of the movie, movie is still worried it didn't take and is still following him. And the elements sort of ratchet up and continue into, well, uh, I guess literally into the realm of myth, really. Uh, very, very Sergio, Leone- Sergio Leone-esque, as I said at the top. Once Upon a Time in Tibet is uh, certainly an excellent name for the film, if you don't feel like calling it Soul on a String in Your Heart. And, uh, if you are a fan of, uh, of that scope and, uh, type of story, uh, of the Western, this will be that type of scope and story. You will recognize it and find much to love therein. And it's just beautiful. Oh, it's, it's just, just staggeringly gorgeous. The, um, it's shot in this sort of oversaturated old school, uh, lighting and color pattern, uh, very much like John Ford would have shot Monument Valley. And, you can read snarky um, uh, reviews of it that say, well, it's just because Zhang Yang uh, uh, shot it to look so good that it looks so good, which sort of <laughs> is, is yeah. like, well, yes, that's why film looks anything. Dummy is the director says, I want it to look like this, not like this. He just uh, chose to do something laudable and executed it well. Yeah, he, he just... He just he just put Ingrid Bergman in it. He didn't. The, the character's not actually pretty. He just cast a gorgeous actress. <laughs> it's just idiocy the, the the degree of of work you have to do to miss the point of this movie is uh, staggering but once again the film critical establishment has risen to the task right but if, but yeah. if both ken and robin give it five stars you know it then who cares stars. what some jerk in uh the berlin film festival thought next up we have jim jarmusch's patterson this was at uh tiff uh, but I uh, elected to uh, wait till it uh, comes out. But you took the equally smart play of seeing it at a film festival. This stars Adam Driver. Got lots of buzz at TIFF. Uh, tell us about it. Adam Driver plays a bus driver in Patterson, New Jersey, named Patterson. And the movie is basically a week in the life. He leaves his house, goes, drives his bus on his route, writes poetry, 
comes back to his house. Uh, he is married to Golshifta Farahani, who was in uh, My Sweet Pepperland, the Kurdish Western that I saw at the film fest a few years back, and is, if anything, even more beautiful and fun in this movie than she was when she was the virtuous school marm in that movie. Um, she is now sort of playing a free spirit who follows sort of a variegated bliss. Uh, she wants to live a artistic, uh, fulfilled life. I think she may not be entirely sure how to do that, but is eager for the quest. Meanwhile, uh, Adam Driver's uh, pa- character Patterson just wants to drive his route, write his poetry, have life move along. And to an extent, Jarmusch is as he usually is, he is on the side of the quotidian and the normal, um, while filming it through the eyes of the quote of the, of the not particularly normal to, uh, uh, sophisticated film goers. And, uh, so that sort of multiple levels of, uh, of, of gaze, I guess, is part of what makes the Jarmusch film so great. It is a film again, in which pretty much nothing happens. And Jarmusch's point is, if this is your life, you're writing poetry and married to Golshifta Farhani, nothing should happen. You win. Congratulations. Uh, and also there's a the sense in his films, though, that he is able to pull off the magical task of making just a hangout movie where you're enjoying the uh, everyday details of a life lived. Uh, that's uh, way uh, easier said than it is uh, done. And he's a, oh, yeah. a, a master of that. And so I'm looking forward to uh, Patterson. Next up, we come to another U.S. indie film. Uh, this one directed by Ingrid Jungerman, and it's called Women Who Kill. If the ending had hit just a little better, that would be another pinnacle. This was so close to the pinnacle, but I I think it was. it's a tough ending to pull off, and it does pull it off. But it's a little bit abrupt. But other than that, this is the lesbian Brooklyn Whit Stillman movie you didn't know you needed. Uh, Ingrid Jungerman plays Morgan, who hosts a podcast with uh, her ex-girlfriend, Jean, uh, Ann Carr. And they break up, and she goes and finds solace in the arms of uh, the sort of cute and gothic-looking uh, Simone, who is played by Sheila Vand, who is the vampire from A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And the podcast that uh, Morgan and Jean have together is called Women Who Kill, and it's about female serial killers and murderesses. And of course, once you've put that uh, that card on the table, you're going to have to turn it up. And indeed, they begin to suspect serially and then jointly that Simone is a serial killer. And the whole story is simultaneously a noir. It is a metaphor about relationships and it's straight up hilarious dialogue driven character comedy along the lines of Whit Stillman. So it's sort of Dykes to watch out for meets Fritz Lang's secret beyond the door. And if that sounds like your cup of tea, uh, rest assured, it is indeed your cup of artisanal fair use tea. And it is fantastic. If only they called their podcast Talk About Stuff, everything would be fine. Right, yes. If it was just Morgan and Jean Talk About Stuff, then they wouldn't have uh, had to terrify themselves when Sheila Vand walks into their life. Uh, next up, we have a uh, film that is uh, already in North American release, and I have been lucky enough to see it too. The Handmaiden by uh, Park Chan-wook, who is, of course, the director of Old Boy and the rest of the Vengeance trilogy, among other things. Ken, it's your film festival. You describe it. I describe it. It's 1932. Korea is occupied by the Japanese, uh, the hated Japanese, certainly, in, in the context of the film. A forger, played by Ha Jung-woo, impersonating Count Fujiwara, uh, plants 
Suki, a thief's daughter and pickpocket in her own right. Uh, Kim Tae-ri in the employ of Lady Hideko, who is played by a Korean, uh, but she is playing a Japanese woman. And this sort of duality is kind of the beginning of the point of the movie, because Lady Hideko's uncle is a Korean who wants to be Japanese. And he also wants to be English because it wouldn't be a proper Gothic without a big, creepy, weird house. And the big, creepy, weird house is half English manor and half Japanese manor. Right. Uh, which nods in part to the fact that this is based on a novel called Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Uh, which is set in Victorian England. Yeah. And uh, it's a uh, sort of a, a sensuous uh, feast of surfaces. It has this great sort of uh, Douglas Serkian... Uh, undertone to it, and uh, for a while you're going, oh, well, Park has kind of toned it down for this one, and then you get to the point where, oh, okay. Yep, where? <laughs> yeah, <Yep>. okay. <laughs> I see where we are now. Yes. Uh, it is, uh, it's quite an experience. I mean, it's, it, everything that he does, nothing he does is accidental, and certainly nothing he does in this movie is accidental, but it does show you an area of control that one might not have immediately associated with Park, right? That if you think of uh, Old Boy, it's obviously a movie that's in great control, but it's a movie that celebrates and is about losing control. And so the, uh, the, the Handmaiden is sort of the opposite of that. It's a movie about losing control, but it celebrates control, uh, certainly cinematically. And there's a lot of... And about women taking control, right? It's yes. A real, it's it a is sort a, of a... Spe- very specifically, who takes control? Women, Korea, all manner of things are taking control in the film. And there's all manner of uh, sneaking around and problem and a great many sex scenes, uh, which, you know, are lovely and sexy, but they do lengthen the film a bit. So if you are, um, you know... <laughs> make sure that you are ready to sit through a two and a half hour film when you start, because you are going to be sitting through a two and a half hour film by the end of it. It did not feel like a two and a half hour uh, film to me, but uh, I always make sure to restrict my beverage intake before I head on yes. to the movie. Um, and I suppose uh, a topic for another day would be why all of a sudden all of Korea's top directors are making films set uh, during the Japanese occupation, whether that is just, you know, uh, they all went together to buy some costumes from the period or whether there's uh, something bigger going on there. But we do not have time for such uh, nonsense and frippery in our film review uh, segment. So let us move on to another film that I saw and we agree on, and that's uh, Neruda uh, by Pablo Lorraine. Uh, this is a, a sort of a magical realist biography, which means... <laughs> which means that it is uh, lovely and untrustworthy. It is the story of uh, Pablo Neruda, poet and senator and tribune of the people and communist who in 1948 is declared persona non grata by the government he helped to elect the Chilean government, we should the say. Chilean government, the Chilean government wishes to arrest him so that he stops um, uh, being so communist. Yeah. Well, they, sends, they got into power with the help of the communists and then they decided they're inconvenient and should all yes. go to concentration camps. And when it happens to the communists, they think that's horribly unfair. Um, so the, uh, the, the, uh, secret policeman Pelucheno, Gail Garcia Bernal is tasked somehow with the hunt for Pablo Neruda. And the question is of whether or not this is a kabuki hunt for Pablo Neruda is raised at the beginning and becomes ever more relevant as the hunt continues and ever more strange as the hunt continues. It is, um, uh, an ambitious movie. It has to a lot of stuff it's trying to do. Um, it's gorgeous. Uh, it's filmed, I think, as you said during our previous discussion in a sort of a washed out Polaroid 
palette. There's a lot of purple in it for some reason and brown, which you don't see a lot, but there's a lot of other strong color bits as Neruda moves from place to place across 1948 Chile. Um, Neruda is depicted as Borges, uh, depicted him a mean man, kind of a, kind of a scumbag, uh, which is a, a refreshing change from making him a, a pure and beautiful saint makes the movie more interesting on a lot of levels. And again, it builds to a sort of magical realist climax that one hesitates to even describe, except to say you'll know it when you see it, and you will be, I think, pretty impressed. Yes, I'm looking for it. He also has a, a biopic of uh, ja- Jackie Onassis coming out for Oscar season. So two yes. two biopics at the same time. The next one on your list, however, is from the Nation of Chicago. It's called The Great State of Chicago. The Great State of Chicago. Uh, called, uh, it's not an American film, it's a Chicago film. It's called Imperfections by David Singer. Just like Hong Kong films are still Hong Kong films, even though they are made under the rubric and auspices of the People's Republic of China, a film that is so Chicago in his imperfections is a Chicago film. Uh, this is a heist movie, rom-com type movie, a caper, uh, a con man movie, all those good things. Jammed up, uh, the director, David Singer, was at uh, the Film Fest doing Q&A, and he said that he was doing this sort of as a tribute to those 1970s uh, con man movies that didn't want to just be one thing, that they were all kinds of stuff going on in the movie. And there was a there was a love interest and there was a, you know, sort of a period where you would wander around and the movie would just be about how great everything was. And then it would go back to its awesome story. And again, it's a tough trick to pull off because often you just wind up with a murky goes nowhere kind of bunch of movie. But instead, this is just a, a nice thing. Uh, Singer is also a musician and he writes a sort of a jazzy David Holmes type score for the thing. So that pulls it together nicely, as does Virginia Cull, who plays Cassidy Harper, who at the beginning of the movie is a struggling actress and is hired to be a diamond courier in Chicago's Jewelers Row. And sure enough, once you have a struggling actress who couriers diamonds, fun sets in. Uh, she is torn between her boss's son uh, and his nefarious schemes and her drug dealer boyfriend, who... Uh, is uh, played by Zach McGowan and is Irish and is lovable and charming, but we suspect perhaps a little worse than her uh, rosy uh, uh, viewpoint paints him. And that is part of the the movie as well as who do we trust? What's going on? Um, who can help uh, our, uh, our lovely new diamond courier out in this world? And perhaps she has to help herself. And that is the Fun and excitement of imperfections is there's a bunch of little character turns. Ed Begley is great. Ed Begley Jr. as the as the diamond merchant who sort of is the guy who hires Cassidy Harper and sets the story in motion in a way. Um, and he gives great curmudgeon. Um, if you are a fan of his curmudgeoning, this is some great curmudgeoning. He, he rarely disappoints. Next, we move along to Katy Katy from uh, Kenyon. I believe this has a bit of a... Is it a, a magical realist element to it, would you say? Yes, yes. There was a, a good bit of magical realism bopping into our films this year. It was sort of a magical realist year. This is a program that German filmmakers, um, uh, Tom Twiker, the guy who did Run, Lola, Run, is specifically one of the producers on this. And they go down to Kenya and they partner up and mentor Kenyan filmmakers. And this Kenyan filmmaker, Mbiti Masia, is um, uh, partnered up, I guess, with Tom Twiker, but it's very much not a Twikery film. And they provide the funding and the equipment, and the Kenyans then make a movie with it. And that seems like a nice thing to do. Uh, this one involves a woman, uh, Kaleche. Uh, she arrives in Kati Kati, which is filmed 
in a um, uh, sort of a crocodile tourism resort. So it looks like a resort. It is a resort in a way. And it's also a place where dead people wind up after they die. They wind up in Kati Kati. And the first bit of it is our sort of exploring the boundaries of this world. And our second bit And that's is, as in they've entered the underworld and we're seeing their spirits, not that they're being fed to the crocodiles, right? No, no. They are not dead. There are no crocodiles. Um, they, they are not being killed in Kati Kati. They are dead, and their and their selves are in Kati Kati. It's just filmed in the resort. Right. There's no crocodiles. Uh, I don't think there's barely any animals at all in the in the thing, which is another interesting. You know, if you're in Kenya, you'd think there'd be lions and whatnot. So it's your gateway to the underworld. It is. It's your it's your your purgatory or your bardo. And the result of the film, though, because it's in this sort of small constrained space, is to make it feel a little bit like the prisoner. Uh, and a little bit like sort of the Isaac Dinison Kenya where there's, you know, nine white guys in the, in the bush country and they all have to be hanging out together because they can't hang out with anyone else. This is sort of like that in a weird flippy way, which I suspect, uh, Mbiti Masia intended even more than I caught. The movie is only 75 minutes long. It's barely an hour and 15. And all those minutes are used. It sort of moves the story along. It's like a parable or a fable. So it's, narratively straightforward, but it's thematically very rich and very deep. And it's really a terrific movie. I mean, it's uh, over and above the question of, you know, being made by one suspects first time filmmakers on all levels, but it's very disciplined and, and, and very straightforward and does a, a lot of great stuff. But as you say, with a weird magical realist feel and uh, like, a, like all good magical realism, it provides you about 75% of an explanation and the rest is, Hold on. What now? Next, let's move to Macedonia for Amok, directed by Vardan Pogia. Yeah, Macedonia turns out to, um, by, I suspect it's one of those sort of, uh, less success story success stories out of the Balkans. Um, and it's been punching above its weight at the film festival. There's usually a Macedonian film and it's usually pretty good. And it's usually a crime film, which this basically is. Uh, it's sort of a 400 blows city of God type thing. The first act is really long. Uh, it follows a orphan named Philip who is in a really crummy orphanage. The uh, officials are corrupt and ripping it off and there's abuse and the kids predating on other kids and all kinds of horrible stuff. And there is one good teacher who is a former orphan who came back and is, is teaching them in sort of a Macedonian version of being a hippie. And, uh, is of course <laughs> completely useless and completely powerless to do anything. And, uh, Philip, it was, uh, cast when they went to Macedonia soccer clubs and found sort of a hooligany kid or hooligany looking kid and said, you want to be in a movie? And he turns out to provide a really great naturalistic performance. And, uh, he becomes, uh, the sort of leader at one, at the point where he has nothing left to lose. He decides he has everything left to prove becomes the head of this sort of nihilist uprising of orphans. And, uh, we wonder if we're going to get another hour and it's going to turn into Scarface, but instead we just get sort of the consequences of that decision and that act that close out the movie. So for a movie called Amok, there's not that much Amokness in it, but what there is is really good. And the, um, uh, and then the, and that slow build along with the fact that it's shot in some really hideous parts of Skopje provide a, a great sort of mise-en-scene that you, you you wind up uh, really sympathizing with this kid in a way that you might not if he was just some sort of uh, 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 juvenile punk in France or America. Finally, we come to a documentary that I wanted to fit in uh, for Tiff and didn't quite. 
Uh, it's called Karl Marx City. When I was recently in uh, Germany and parts of it that were formerly East Germany, there's this uh, dislocating sense of this seems very normal, but also it seems like up until kind of strangely recently, it was very unnormal, and that's what this documentary explores. Yeah, this is a documentary by a husband and wife couple, Petra Epperlein, who was born in East Germany, and Michael Tucker, who is an American. And come to find out a while ago, Petra Epperlein's uh, father committed suicide, and she was very badly you know, broken up by that. And she began looking into his life and discovered that one of the things that happened uh, was right after the wall fell, he was accused anonymously of being a Stasi informer. And she was saying, did this accusation have something to do with his taking his own life? What's going on? And so about 10 years after his death, she goes into, uh, begin, begins investigating it. She winds up in East Germany or in the former East Germany at the Stasi headquarters. And at the former Stasi headquarters, they have a giant museum where they keep everybody's Stasi file. And you can go and you can demand your file and request it. And it comes to you eventually. And, and often it will contain like a complete inventory of every drawer in your apartment. <laughs> right. It will have all manner of things yes. and uh, insanely complete footage of you like filmed like home movies you didn't take that were taken by the, by the government. The, the Stasi was a big employer. It turns out it, it was uh, it's something like one out of every 17 adults in Germany was uh, in East Germany was working as a Stasi informer or agent. Um, that's a lot of people. The, the line was, um, if there's three of you at dinner, one of you is an informer. Um, and that may have just been that the Stasi, you know, concentrated on the dinners where they suspected they needed informers, or it might've been, you know, no, that's just statistically accurate, just statistically accurate, red line, whatever. Yeah. So Epperlein and Tucker, when they got access to this archive, they also got access to the footage and as they said, you could cut so many naturalist documentaries about East Germany together from this footage. All the sound is Stasi sound, all the bird song, all the traffic noise, everything like that. The The film shows Epperlein wandering around. Is it around. surprisingly technically good? It's, I mean, for 19, you know, 70s, 1980s, it, for, it doesn't look that different 70s, from other 70s, 80s surveillance 80s footage. It's, surveillance uh, footage. Um, it's uh, really a lot of craftsmanship. It, it, uh, I suspect the craftsmanship comes in Epperlein and Tucker cutting it back together. Uh, not so much in the filming, but the filming is, it's good. It's well filmed, you know, good old Germans. Yeah. As, <laughs> as long as your surveillance is beautifully shot, it's not so bad. Yes. yes. They're, 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 one wonders if the Stasi had people who narrated pain stories of existential anomie over the footage to make it better. They did have, though, women would read the, the descriptions of what happened in, in sort of a neutral voice. Uh, on these films. And for this, they had Epperlein's daughter read the sort of, um, uh, neutral narrator, uh, to give that sort of Stasi imagery to the whole film. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's sort of just staggering when you look at the amount of, of footage, the amount of surveillance, the amount of sort of nightmarish presence that the Stasi had just in this one person's life and realize that was true of all 30 million people. They all have this mountain on them and it, it's, it, it's beyond paranoia. Uh, it, it's just like saying, Oh, Hey, Robin, the oxygen is conspiring against you. Yep. Good luck with that. Well, good that we in the, in the modern contemporary West know that there aren't agencies monitoring our every electronic communication maybe. or, or at the very least that they've um, uh, solved. They've cracked that employment nut. Yeah, yes. <laughs> they've automated it to improve productivity. 
Good for you, agencies. Well, um, as we begin to uh, uh, slide into paranoia and despair, I think it's time to slide into a commercial, thus closing the Chicago International Film Festival Cinema Hut for yet another year. Werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This podcast is also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Andrew Reichardt. Nikolai Hansen. John Rogers. Hyperlexic. And Jason Denon. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys and the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar tell us once more we have set out to learn how to write good. And here, in this segment, we are going to discuss what Robin has termed commentary beats, and one assumes that this is not just the part where the narrator stops the plot dead to explain why libertarianism or communism or vegetarianism or feminism or any of your isms are better than reading an exciting novel, which is in theory what you are doing. Okay, but it's exactly about that. Oh, dear. Uh, so, uh, I'm working <laughs> is this on... how to make it good or stop doing that? What are we talking? The segment will reveal. Those are two separate questions. All right. Uh, well, so I've asked yes, them both. Uh, Step up. So if I may comment for a moment. If uh, you may. I'm working on a uh, follow-up to Hamlet's Hit Points, uh, my book of narrative analysis directed to role players called Beating the Story, which will be a book of the essentially same system of narrative analysis with some new added uh, elements that is aimed at writers of fiction. And so I am back looking at the way that Hamlet's Hit Points and now Beating the Story uh, look at fiction. And uh, there are... Uh, so basically, the, the building blocks of narrative are either dramatic beats. These are uh, beats in which uh, two characters or even one character engaged in an internal, in, an inner conflict, uh, uh, resolve something emotional, or a procedural beat in which something external is resolved, right? You uh, crack a safe or you escape from a werewolf or, or what have you. But there are other uh, beats that don't necessarily forward the narrative that occasionally appear, uh, and one of these is the commentary beat. And this is the moment where the author uh, either 
very directly or with one level of veiling uh, addresses the audience in order to convey a sense of meaning or something uh, about something. Because, of course, meaning is what most writers attempt to convey. If you read a uh, piece of fiction or see a movie that only exists in order to share its plot with you but has no meaning whatsoever, that is a big flaw. Um, and we have become increasingly resistant to direct communication of ideas or editorializing uh, by the author. But if you uh, tumble back in time about a hundred years, you will find that this is one of the things that was expected of an author. They were supposed to pontificate about uh, uh, life and, uh, and uh, philosophy and impart nuggets of wisdom and salt in little epigrams. Even uh, Guy de Maupassant, who is uh, possibly the most absolutely most uh, stripped down uh, writer of his era and possibly also ever will occasionally pause to tell you something about the eternal nature of, of women or, or what have you. And today, a lot of people uh, still want to convey thoughts and ideas uh, through their fiction. But, Ken, as you immediately get to the point, uh, you point out that this generally stops the plot dead. Uh, and so, for example, you would not generally tend to do what Dickens does at the beginning of Tale of Two Cities and have basically this sort of prose poem, uh, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, that sums up its whole era before introducing a character for us to identify with. And you also probably wouldn't get away with what uh, Shakespeare chooses to do when the players arrive in Hamlet. And how about we have about uh, three to seven minutes of in-jokes about theater? Well, <laughs> Shakespeare chooses to do that. And uh, presumably he had a comic actor. I don't know. If, do we know who played the player? It might have even been Shakespeare himself. You know, if that actor was... I think it, it may have been Kemp. Yeah, it may have been Kemp. But whoever it was... this was late, so it might be the late clown. Right. Uh, but whoever it was, they uh, obviously that played in the house uh, at the time. So the, the, the question is, uh, if it is you feel it is the job of the writer in, of fiction to convey meaning, which I would argue that it is, uh, are there better ways to convey the ideas behind your work than stopping to address that directly. And uh, my suggestion, of course, would be uh, yes. Can you think, Ken, in your uh, vast uh, watching and writing of uh, films or uh, novels or other works of fiction that have effectively conveyed their content uh, to the uh, the viewer or the reader and how they did that? Well, I mean, part of the situation is that effectiveness is a lot of times in the eye of the beholder. Uh, if one is generally... Uh, positively disposed to libertarianism. One does not mind uh, stopping the plot of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress Dead to discuss libertarianism the way that Robert Heinlein does. I suspect, however, that if one is not, one becomes a little irritated and wishes that the moon would get on revolting instead of having a political argument. That said, Heinlein cleverly has constituted the book as the creation of a revolution, which involves an awful lot of political argument. Uh, similarly, um, I just finished reading Colin Wilson's Gerard Sorm trilogy, which is a, it's a Roman Eclef about himself. Uh, it's a Kunstler Roman of the artist coming to whatever realization the artist has eventually come to. And in the second novel of it, he casts it as a diary so that he can deliberately talk to himself and argue out his own philosophical position over and over and over. And only after having read the second one, do you think that the first and third novels are more subtle, uh, because indeed, uh, the second one is a little heavier going, but 
If you are interested in sort of the evolution of Colin Wilson's thought, as I am, and if you are interested uh, in sort of the playing out of a optimistic existentialism, as I imagine more people were in the 1960s when these were huge bestsellers, um, I think that the uh, that the possibilities um, are 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 endless. And so a lot of it is is down to what is your audience looking for, and and how is your audience prepared to learn that. Um, so an objective sense of this is slow and this is not slow. I think, although one would like to dispense it from Olympus is maybe a little harder to come by. Right. Um, as you suggest, uh, taste in this changes by era and the fifties and sixties were a very sort of a searching questing kind of existential era where people were trying to figure out what was going on. And I think we're more receptive to that. And it seems also like the uh, late 19th century was uh, there was certainly a, a more of a vogue for pontification than there were at, at other periods. And I uh, definitely, it's clear, I think that there is a less of an appetite for uh, editorializing uh, now. People are even more swamped in editorializing, often in 140 characters at a time uh, than, than they have been probably at any other time. And people are more uh, uh, polarized than they are because that's one of the risks that you take when you begin to uh, just convey uh, ideas, particularly political ideas, to the audiences that you are presuming generally that you are going to be rewarded for laying out these truths to the audience, meaning that you already think they agree with you, meaning that basically if, if you're congratulating the audience for having the political opinions that you share, um, I'm actually more intolerant of uh, fiction that stops to editorialize and present me with opinions I already have because I already have those opinions. <laughs> you don't need to be told them again. I'm not insecure about them. I don't need to have them affirmed. I'm actually uh, slightly more interested in being exposed to a, a contrary, which is to say wrong opinion, so that I can then figure out why it's wrong and enjoy that challenge of it. So there's <laughs> there's two different risks that you run. It may just be wrong because it's slowing down this novel. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. There's t there's two risks that you take when you when you do that. One, you're disengaging people from the emotional engagement with the characters uh, and switching to intellectual engagement. Uh, and so that that could well be annoying. And also the uh, other annoying thing is that once you do that, I might think you're uh, uh, full of bat sauce. And so how <laughs> do you convey meaning in an environment like ours where uh, people are apt to disagree with you? Well, you embed it in the action of your fiction. And so you uh, look at the plot and have your plot with the characters who are emotionally engaged with uh, one another uh, doing things that establishes your worldview. Now, there are this may or may not persuade anyone. Uh, there are ways certainly in which you can contrive events to attempt to prove something ridiculous. Uh, I personally have a big uh, grudge against films that uh, try to uh, establish the existence of God and then have a miracle happen to prove that. It's like, that's cheating. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that is how you do it, is, is you make it part of the action and that what you see happens shows you the uh, the world as you're attempting to describe it. And you can either attempt, uh, rather than try to affirm the audience and congratulate them for the uh, opinions they already have, you might, uh, as Bertolt Brecht did, show them a world that they wish to reject, to take action against. Um, that, too, is controversial in today's world. Some people feel that 
uh, presenting an injustice and, and making you feel that injustice is the same essentially as doing an injustice. Uh, this is an, an interesting turn of events for, uh, for activism, and it'll be interesting to see how that continues to affect uh, the way that people go forward. But, but yes, indeed, my recommendation with uh, commentary beats and with meaning and with editorializing is to embed them in the action so that they're always either a dramatic beat in which two characters work something out emotionally. Uh, that's different than having one character lecture the other and take the position that is right, and the other character forced to just sit there and listen because the other side is wrong. Uh, that's another problem of political drama is that it, the, uh, <laughs> it's so far weighted that the... The, the, the that John the, Galt effect. Yes, exactly. And again, that's something that is independent of any particular ideology uh, and is a big pitfall to fall into. So if you uh, make sure you know your uh, narrative of meaning features characters who are internally conflicted, not characters who are just right about everything and just need to explain it to everybody else because that's just a disguised editorial. And you know there's a better format for that. It's called the editorial. <laughs> the, the the notion of a character who's conflicted in internal meaning, of course, is what Gerard Storm does in the Colin Wilson novels. Um, he's fighting with himself. He's trying to figure out what he believes. And so while it is still, it is still slow going in a couple of places, it doesn't stop it as dead as when characters either lecture each other about things that they already know, which is the worst kind of thing, because that's as you know, Bob, only as you feel, Bob, which is even worse. And characters who are lecturing the foil who will be proven wrong in the course of the novel, which is also annoying um, and is even more annoying because you suspect, and quite rightly, that the foil is meant to represent you, the reader, and their doubts about whatever this specific commentary is. And I think, should we put maybe a little circle around the difference between a commentary beat and a, oh, we have to explain how the warp drive works beat, which is in order to, you know, make the story, you know, understandable to the reader or, uh, you know, one hopes that's why, as opposed to showing off how you thought up a work drive. Yes. Um, in, in the beat analysis system, that's an entire different category called, strangely enough, information beats. Information beats. So a commentary beat is one in which you are editorializing usually about something outside the purview of the novel, as well as in the novel and attempt to directly it, connect it's it. It's inside the purview of the novel, but it doesn't, uh, it is not required to follow the action that it's outside the it's outside the narrative but not outside the meaning and so for example the uh alternate chapters of uh, uh grapes of wrath that nobody remembers that are these different tone poems basically describing uh the set uh, the, the the setting of the characters that are basically all making different points about capitalism are you know classic extended commentary uh, uh beats and uh there's a reason why when people remember that novel, they don't remember those chapters. And I guess one of the uh, the real questions you have to ask yourself is, are you an editorialist first uh, and are only using the mechanism of narrative because you figure that's a delivery system that will expose your thought to people who otherwise wouldn't read your editorials, mm -hmm. or whether you are a storyteller first. And if that's the case, I think you will have a richer result if you pursue ideas that you yourself recognize to be contradictory, that you see different sides of it and are trying to work it out for yourself, you may come down on a side, but if you can, uh, you know, if you're thinking of doing an issues related uh, uh, story and can inhabit contrary points of view about it, I think that 
gives you something that is much stronger and gives you something that is um, uh, has much more potential for for drama and ambiguity, which I think is the uh, the essence of great fiction and the enemy of political activism. Uh, that that uh, it will give you something that is that is much stronger. But the the overall piece of advice, uh, any way you cut it, is find ways to turn those commentary beats into true, authentic, uh, dramatic, or procedural beats, which sounds like a conclusive statement. It did. It sounded very final. And therefore, uh, time to uh, edge our way into the next segment. Delta Green, the ultra-covert, some might say rogue, intelligence agency that battles the cosmic forces of the Cthulhu mythos, is once again recruiting. You might say they have a high churn rate, but that's neither here nor there. What is both here and there is the Delta Green Agent's Handbook and Delta Green Need to Know, the quick start rules with scenario and very sturdy handler screen, are both in stores now from Arc Dream Publishing. The Agent's Handbook netted five stars and 29 out of 29 reviews on Amazon, and one silver for best supplement at the Annie's. It features all the rules you need to play your shadow war against Nierlathotep and company. Includes substantial chapters on tradecraft. And insider profiles of U.S. federal agencies and special forces. Useful in any game that features covert action. But especially useful when you join Delta Green. Looking for a few good people. And probably a few more good people after that. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that once more we are in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated puts Ken in when it wants him to go back into the time stream and bend, fold, spindle, and mutilate it. And in this case, we have another request from one of our Patreon backers, the enigmatic yet munificent backer known as Paul, who uh, has the following request. How did Ken foil Timothy Pickering's Federalist plan for New England to secede from the United States in 1804? What happened in the alternate timeline where the plan succeeded? That's a two-part question. Ken, I guess we want to start with, uh, before we get to question A or B, we want to find out more about Timothy Pickering. He fought in the Revolutionary War. He was in Washington's uh, cabinet starting as Postmaster General back when that was a plum post and worked his way up to... Uh, even bigger posts. Uh, so tell us a bit more about Timothy Pickering. Uh, Timothy Pickering is, as you uh, hint, a lawyer and a patriot. He fought the hated British in um, the Essex County Militia and then uh, eventually uh, fought them in, uh, Le in Lexington and Concord. He retreated from the British when they attempted to raid Salem. The possibility has been argued, certainly by his enemies later, that he did it because he was secretly pro-British. The answer is probably because he didn't like their chances. And indeed, since the Lexington militia was pretty much wiped out, uh, one can't really argue with him on that question. But he did um, uh, show up with a with a good uh, regiment of Ex Essex County militia. He was a competent quartermaster, a, a, a good worker with others, and eventually wound up trying to move to Pennsylvania to straighten out uh, some land grants there that had been given to New Englanders, uh, s supported them in law and on the ground. And Washington, having had his fill of backcountry Pennsylvania and Massachusettsians, I think sent a little message when he made Pickering 
the Postmaster General. So take us from uh, that to his uh, attempt to uh, arrange a, a good old-fashioned secession. How did that come about? Uh, well, first of all, he is uh, very much pro-British, uh, felt that the British were our natural buddies, even though uh, there was a bit of misunderstanding and unpleasantness back in the 76, thought that certainly once France becomes a revolutionary tyranny and chopping people's heads off and going bananas, that we certainly shouldn't be helping them do anything. And uh, he winds up as Secretary of State uh, in Washington's last uh, cabinet and uh, is very much part of the pro-British tilt of, of that era. And when John Adams becomes president uh, and John Adams is attempting to uh, paper over the XYZ affair and the undeclared naval war. Okay, well, we'll need footnotes on, on the XYZ affair, at least. Okay, the XYZ affair is when uh, three French diplomats showed up and attempted to bribe their way into political power and influence in Washington, D.C. And you will have to remember that in those ancient times, it was common for foreign countries to pay untold sums of money to political officials and their wives in order to get some sort of preferment. Now, of course, that's never done. But uh, <laughs> in those days, it was un scandal, and the names of the commissioners uh, were X, Y, and Z, redacted uh, in the in the Federalist Press so that you could go ahead and, and make up anyone's name that you wanted. Uh, it became a giant deal. At the same time, the French are pushing us around on the ocean, and we're fighting back what is called the Undeclared Naval War. And Adams, realizing that the Americas do not need another war— makes peace with France and the French apologize. And they say, we promise not to bribe anyone who isn't, you know, asking very nicely to be bribed and we'll stop shooting at your boats and everything's cool. We're, we'll, we'll let you trade. So Pickering says peace with France. Zucalors, name of a little blue name. I refuse. And Adam says, well, as president, your refusal, it means you're not secretary of state. So he goes back to uh, Massachusetts where he rejoins his buddies, the Essex Junto and the Essex Junto were a bunch of guys from Essex County, Massachusetts, and they included um, uh, Timothy Pickering, they included Fisher Ames, they included all manner of people who are mostly trivia questions now, but at the time were super important figures in the Massachusetts politics, which meant they were super important figures in national politics because Massachusetts was one of the two or three most important states in the Union. And... Uh, the Essex Junto was more Federalist than the Federalists. They were sort of arch-Federalists. And in political propaganda after them, uh, the, the Democratic Republicans, the Jeffersonians, blamed them for everything. They said, well, this is an Essex Junto plan. So, you know, if you if nowadays you read about people who are saying the Dominionists are into everything, the Essex Junto are kind of that. They're a hate word more than they are a real thing. But to the extent they're a real thing, they're a political machine, just like all of them. And this machine is made out of arch-federalists. And, and what did it mean to be a federalist? At a this federalist time? at this time meant you wanted a strong national government, you wanted internal improvements, you wanted peace with the British ideally, and better yet, trade with the British, because you probably owned a ship, and you wanted a national judiciary, you wanted a strong central national government. Right. And all of those things later happened, but not at that time. Well, they they later happened thanks pretty much entirely to Alexander Hamilton, who was the Treasury Secretary under George Washington. And um, those things happened, you know, even more so after that, uh, usually ascribed to the Civil War, but certainly they were going on even then. There was a great back and forth between Jefferson and the Federalists about uh, who was treading on whose uh, uh, constitutional corns. And the Federalists, after the uh, Louisiana Purchase began to 
uh, visibly alter the character of the country because it, you know, you don't have to be a weatherman to notice that there's going to be a lot of new states and those states are not going to be New England. New England's, um, uh, proportional power over the country is only going to dwindle and New Englanders hate that. And they hated it even more when they used to be important, when they were important. So the arch federalists began to conspire to break up the federal union. The sort of positive spin on that is that they didn't want to deal with a bunch of slaveholding southerners. Um, there are many cases in which the Essex Junto said that they should take every state down to the Potomac with them when they left. Uh, there are other cases in which it was just, nope, if you are a seaport in New England, your deal is better if you're just trading with the British and ignoring these crazy people who are taking over national politics to the south of us. And that sort of question roiled internal Massachusetts politics all the way down to 1814 and led specifically to the 1804 attempt to break New England free of the Federal Union. And what form did that uh, attempt take? I'm so glad you asked. In 1804, after the Louisiana Purchase, the Essex Shunto start writing letters to each other. Actually, they start writing letters to each other considerably before that. The Essex Junto knows that the Adamses, John, who fired Pickering, and John Quincy, who is the rising head of the Federalist Party, uh, the moderate Federalists in New England, will jump all over them if they start making noises about breaking up the Union First of all, because it's hilarious that arch-federalists are breaking up the Union. Second of all, because <laughs> it can so easily be painted as turning us back over to the hated British. And that's not what John Quincy Adams was put on this earth to do, certainly. It's called New England, not about to be England Exactly, again. not West England. So um, they're writing to each other, sort of uh, getting each other going in a, uh, we should all have a junto and we should all get ready to declare our independence from hate the, the, the mean old Thomas Jefferson. Um, and they figured that if they could get Aaron Burr elected governor of New York in 1804, he would bring New York out of the union with them, basically out of spite at Thomas Jefferson being a jerk to Aaron Burr. And while they probably had Aaron Burr's character pegged, they did not have Alexander Hamilton's character pegged. And Alexander Hamilton said, Look, in 1800, I made sure that Aaron Burr doesn't become president. I certainly don't want him to become governor of New York either. And Hamilton works like the very Dickens with the Democrats or the Democratic Republicans or the Republicans. It's a very confusing time. He works with the uh, Jeffersonians to elect uh, a appanage of the Clinton machine to become that that's the New York Clintons, not our Clintons, not our New York Clintons. Yeah, the Clintons um, have been in politics a long time, but not quite yes. that long. These are other Clintons to elect an appendage of the Clinton machine to governorship of New York once more, mostly to thwart Aaron Burr, who is a jerk. But it is that thwarting that means that the Essex Junto can't bring New York into the conspiracy. And from with New York, they could probably have brought in Pennsylvania, given Pickering's connection to the Wyoming Valley settlers in Pennsylvania. And once Pennsylvania, New York and New Jersey and New England are in, then you've got that northern U.S. that you read about uh, in their letters to each other. Now, uh. What we've got so far are all the things that our uh, uh, backer, our questioner, already knows, but everyone else needed to know mm -hmm. in order to get to the part that Paul wants to know, which is, where does your time machine come in? What did you do to ensure that all this fervent letter writing uh, didn't uh, result in... Came to nothing. Yes. The thing that I did in my time machine may have contributed to an unpleasant effect or two, but I stand by it, was take copies of that correspondence and copies of Burr's correspondence back with me and 
drop hints to Alexander Hamilton that, hey, these guys are trying to mess with you and take you out of the head headship of the Federalist Party. And that'd be a shame. Hamilton and I are buds, right? Uh, we're, we're old school pro Washingtonians. We, um, uh, we're, we're in favor of higher education and drinking. Hamilton's more in favor of sneaking around with other people's wives than I am. But, you know, in 1804, I guess that's a more done thing. And so he and I are simpatico and it's relatively easy to drop the information into his ears just ahead of the time that he will get it from other sources so that the effect becomes reinforced and any danger that he might have gone along with the Essex Junto is not just minimized, but is reversed. And he becomes an actively anti-Junto fellow, leaguing himself with people you would not have thought he leagued himself with, John Quincy Adams among them, and enjoys the putting his finger in Aaron Burr's eye a little more than perhaps I had intended at the time. Thus, someone gets shot. Which is on maybe on me. I don't know. Or, you, you know, Aaron Burr is a wild card. He's a loose cannon. He's a crazy person. You can never tell what he's going to do. Right. No matter how many times you go back in time and mess with it, you can never tell what Aaron Burr is going right. to do. But Trust me. With your chronometer, you've seen the reality in which Pickering secession succeeds, and perhaps Burr remains unshot. Uh, what does that look like? Then? Hamilton remains oh, sorry, unshot. Hamilton remains unshot. Yes. Uh, the reality in which Aaron Burr is shot is an entirely different reality and pretty interesting in and, in and of itself. I can't keep but, track of all these timelines. But the world in which Hamilton merely sits on his hands and decides to um, uh, uh, pox on both your houses or brings the Federalists in behind Burr in an attempt to maximize their political power in a Burr administration. And remember, at this time, Burr only has Tammany Hall. He doesn't have the whole uh, Albany uh, Hudson Valley Clinton machine behind him. So he needs some support and where better than the money, the Federalists to get it. So it's uh, Burr and Hamilton both bring New York out. They join the Essex Junto already in progress. The Essex Junto begins burbling along in 1807. Uh, Jefferson passes the Embargo Act, which is grotesquely unconstitutional and awful and literally forbids American trade with any country that restricts trade with America. So you can't trade with England. You can't trade with France. Guess what? That's all the countries. There's no other countries in 1807 because France and England between them run all the countries. Uh, it's the Napoleonic Wars. They're going full tilt. So it basically shuts down trade. Uh, the Embargo Act gives the federal government the, author uh, the authority to enter ships without a warrant, to seize them without court proceedings, just completely uh, violative of everything Jefferson believed. So if you were sitting there on your heels making fun of the Federalists for believing in secession, now you have uh, Thomas Jefferson believing in extrajudicial theft and uh, uh, trial. So take it. Every Everyone is going to do that at some point. But the Embargo Act in 1807 becomes the overt act that drives the North into an actual secession. And the trouble with the North seceding is it removes any governor from the South. And the South, if it is allowed to take over the country without, you know, killing two-thirds of a million people in the process, becomes a giant slaveholding country. And a modern industrial slaveocracy that doesn't have to fight a civil war, uh, extending all the way to the uh, to the coast, as indeed it would, because the West is for the South in this particular uh, dispute, um, winds up being a really, really horrible place. It's a industrial slave-owning democracy. It uh, becomes a, at the very least, a, th a thorn in the side of people who believe in ongoing political progression. More to the point, it becomes 
a force for oppression and slavery and winds up at loggerheads over and over and over with Britain, not least because of Britain's interest in reducing the rump United States to puppethood, which it would almost certainly do because again, they've got to get support from somewhere. And uh, perhaps the rump United States might have a slightly more equal, uh, they might be considered a, a lesser great power as opposed to a complete protectorate, but perhaps not. This is back when Canada is still teeming with British troops and any, uh, any uh, mischance uh, might've led to uh, an occupation or a protection that becomes a, uh, for lack of a better word, um, uh, re- reabsorption of the of the colonies into uh, Mother England. Well, you'd still have more use in your spelling. You, we would get still have more, more use, use in our spelling. Well, I would not, because as a Scots Irishman of uh, of, uh, of sort of Appalachian descent, and uh, to the extent that my family was from anywhere, they probably showed up in Virginia and then drifted into West Virginia when Virginia got too pricey. I would probably be a citizen of the horrible slaveocracy United States. Chicago, Fort Dearborn would have been a um, uh, great entrepot for moving uh, slaves and timber and whatnot back and forth throughout the land. Uh, it would not be a pleasant place. Chicago wouldn't be the greatest city in the world because it would be evil. Right. Well, you um, can't have that. Well, uh, number one in the Time Incorporated playbook is to eliminate from the time stream uh, through as peaceful method as possible uh, all the alternate evil kens. Uh, so yes. it's a good thing that you uh, altered history in in this way and uh, saved uh, really the universe from yourself. I did. I did. I once more very self-sacrificing and if I can ever figure out how to do it without also accidentally sacrificing Alexander Hamilton, rest assured, I'll get right on that. Uh, well, uh, that sounds like the end of an after-action report, and uh, when we end our after-action report, I think it's time to end our podcast, so we'll uh, rejoin you uh, next week when, speaking of drowning sorrows, there will be some sorrows uh, to be drowned, because uh, we are recording this on Election Day, uh, so if you're waiting for our exciting uh, political commentary and or commiseration, uh, you will hear that in next week's show, so see you all then, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Join such conspiracy-thwarting patrons as... Frank King. Ruth Tillman. Andrew Cowie. JC Toodles. And Yadge from Edinburgh. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.